New York, this is Democracy Now! What I support, I support on Roe v. Wade. That was the law of the land for 50 years. He celebrated when it fell down, and I would fight to reestablish on Roe v. Wade. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. In one of the most watched races in the country, Pennsylvania Senate candidates John Fetterman and Dr. Mehmet Oz faced off in their only debate ahead of the November 8th election. It came five months after Fetterman suffered a stroke. We'll speak to Will Bunch, the Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist with the Philadelphia Inquirer. We'll also talk to Bunch and a student about Penn State, their attempt, the attempt by a right-wing student group to bring Proud Boys founder Gavin McGinnis to campus Monday night. Penn State officials initially approved the event, but authorities canceled it right before the talk, citing a, quote, threat of escalating violence. Proud Boys may protesters and journalists. It is canceled. The event is canceled. Thank you. Thank you. And with the midterms less than two weeks away, we go to Georgia to speak with Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A Ukrainian official is warning Russian forces are preparing for, quote, the heaviest of battles in the strategic southern region of Kherson, as Ukrainian troops continue their advance on the occupied area. Thousands of residents are still evacuating. On Tuesday, President Biden warned Russia against using nuclear or radioactive weapons in Ukraine following Moscow's unsupported allegation that Ukrainians could deploy a dirty bomb. The U.S., along with Kyiv and European allies, have rejected Russia's accusation. Russia would be making an incredibly serious mistake if we were to use a tactical nuclear weapon. I'm not guaranteeing you that it's a false flag operation yet. I don't know. But uh, it would be a serious, serious mistake. The White House said Tuesday they have no evidence Russia is preparing to use such weapons. Meanwhile, Ukraine's nuclear energy operator said Russian forces occupying the Zaporizhia nuclear plant could be, quote, preparing a terrorist act using nuclear materials and radioactive waste stored, unquote. The Congressional Progressive Caucus has withdrawn a letter to the White House just one day after sending it, which urged the Biden administration to pursue direct negotiations with Russia for a ceasefire in Ukraine. The letter, signed by 30 liberal lawmakers, sparked a swift backlash among a number of Democrats for undermining support for Ukraine and for fracturing the Democratic response to the war ahead of November's midterms, as some Republicans are calling into question how much the U.S. should be sending to Ukraine. Progressive caucus chair Pramila Jayapal said in a statement Tuesday, quote, the letter was drafted several months ago, but unfortunately was released by staff without vetting. The letter has been conflated with GOP opposition to support for the Ukrainians' just defense of their national sovereignty. As such, it is a distraction at this time, she said. A Russian court Tuesday rejected an appeal by WNBA basketball star Brittany Griner upholding her nine-year sentence on drug smuggling charges. Griner was arrested in February when airport customs officials found a small amount of cannabis oil in her luggage. The ruling increases pressure on the Biden administration to free Griner through negotiations. According to CNN, Griner's attorneys say a prisoner exchange is likely her best option. 
In Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz faced off Tuesday in their only debate in the race for U.S. Senate. The men sparred over abortion, the economy and fracking. Fetterman also addressed his health as he recovers from a stroke last May. During a heated exchange over reproductive rights, Republican candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz offered this response on who should be involved in abortion decisions. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. Here in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul squared off with Republican Congressmember Lee Zeldin in their only gubernatorial debate. Governor Hochul called out Zeldin's positions on abortion rights, gun control, and a support of Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Basically, heard Lee Zeldin say he would vote once again to overturn a presidential election. I think that's something everybody should know. And the fact that he sent text messages to the chief of staff of the White House to lay out the strategy on how to subvert public opinion and try to carve it into this idea that there's a big lie out there. And I think that's deeply troubling. Ahead of Tuesday's New York debate, climate activists shut down traffic on Park Avenue as they called on Governor Hochul to tax the rich and pass a Green New Deal. Police arrested some of the activists who were protesting in front of Black Rock headquarters. In Washington, D.C., activists from the group Rise St. James held a funeral procession in memory of those who lost their lives to cancer and other illnesses that have been plaguing residents of St. James Parish, Louisiana, which has been dubbed Cancer Alley. The majority black area has been deemed a so-called sacrifice zone and counts some 200 petrochemical plants over an 80-mile stretch of the Mississippi River from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. This is activists in Gold Prize winner Sharon Levine speaking in front of the White House yesterday. Cancer is taking over our lives in the river parishes, down Cancer Alley, and throughout the whole Gulf South. So we're asking President Biden to declare St. James Parish, Cancer Alley, to declare this an emergency. If he will not declare this an emergency, we are going to die. We are already dying. A new Greenpeace report finds only 5 percent of all plastic products are recycled in the United States, with the rest ending up in landfills. In fact, no plastic packaging in the U.S. meets the threshold to be called recyclable, according to one well-known standard. Greenpeace said, quote, it's time to accept that plastic recycling is a failed concept. The group says more viable alternatives, such as reuse and refill systems, must be quickly scaled up, adding, quote, companies can no longer use recycling as a smokescreen to divert a attention from the systemic changes that are needed, Greenpeace said. Adidas has ended its multimillion-dollar partnership with rapper Ye, more commonly known as Kanye West, amidst mounting fallout over his recent anti-Semitic comments. On a recent podcast, West boasted, quote, I can say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me, unquote. Adidas has its own history with anti-Semitism. The company was founded by a member of the Nazi party. The rapper has also repeated anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. In recent days, West also has been dropped by his talent agency, CAA, and The Gap has pulled their remaining products from his Yeezy collaboration um, with retail. Earlier this month, Twitter locked West's account after he posted he was, quote, going death con three on Jewish people. 
after Ye lo was locked out by both Twitter and Instagram for violating its rules, the right-wing social media platform Parler announced it's being purchased by Kanye West. A few weeks ago, Kanye West was pictured with African-American conservative pundit Candace Owens at his Paris fashion show, both of them wearing shirts emblazoned with the phrase, White Lives Matter. He also said George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose, not police brutality. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, members of a hate group hung banners over a busy freeway overpass Sunday as they gave the Nazi salute. One of the banners read, Kanye is right about the Jews. Several organizations have said the anti-Semitic hate group Goyim Defense League is behind the overpass stunt. In Burma, the death toll from military air raids in the northern state of Kachin Sunday has risen to 80. While some 100 people were wounded, Sunday night's attack came as hundreds of people had gathered to attend a concert selling the, celebrating the founding of the Kachin Independence Organization. It's likely the deadliest aerial assault launched by Burma's military regime since it seized power in a February 2021 coup. Human rights advocates have accused the Burmese military junta of war crimes and have called on the national community to ban the sale of weapons and airplane fuel to Burma. In Iran, university students in Tehran and across the country continue to defy heightened security in a bloody government crackdown on protests following the death of 22-year-old Masamini last month. Students refused to return to class after Iranian authorities alleged a university student in Tehran had died of suicide. Authorities have been repeatedly accused of covering up the killing of student protesters by Iranian security forces. Student-led protests were held at a number of universities in Tehran on Tuesday on the eve of plan ceremonies commemorating 40 days since the death of Masa Amini while in the custody of the so-called morality police. Mourners and protesters gathered at a grave today in her home city of Saquez to mark the somber anniversary. It's also the end of the traditional mourning period in Iran. Protesters shouted, woman, life, freedom, and death to the dictator. Iranian security forces had reportedly threatened Amini's family if they held a ceremony, saying they should worry for their son's life. At least 215 people, including 27 children, have been killed by Iranian security forces since protests began. Thousands of others have been arrested, it's believed. In Uganda, at least 11 people, most of them children, have died in a fire that engulfed a dormitory at the Salama School for the Blind in the district of Mukono while students were asleep. Police have launched an investigation into the blaze. And writer, historian and activist Mike Davis has died at the age of 76. He authored a number of books, including Planet of Slums, Ecology of Fear and City of Courts, a searing look at his hometown of Los Angeles. In 2020, Democracy Now! spoke to Mike Davis during the height of the pandemic. It's one thing that uh, really had my eyes opened up by my two younger children who are still in high school and by the students I've been teaching this year, they will not vote unless there's absolutely radical, serious structural change uh, in the democratic platform uh, and that they can believe in. And uh, this is something that, as I say, I mean, we need to fight like hell for that. In August, with just months to live, Mike Davis told The Guardian, quote, what keeps us going ultimately is our love for each other and our refusal to bow our heads to accept the verdict, however all-powerful it seems, 
It's what ordinary people have to do. You have to love each other. You have to defend each other. You have to fight, he said. Mike Davis died Tuesday at his home in San Diego from complications related to esophageal cancer. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Pennsylvania, Senate candidates Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz faced off Tuesday night in their first and only debate ahead of the November 8th election to fill the seat held by Republican Senator Pat Toomey, who's retiring at the end of the term. The Pennsylvania race will likely help decide which party controls the Senate. Fetterman's the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, who's running as a progressive populist. Oz is a well-known television doctor who's worth at least 700 $76 million. He's been endorsed by Donald Trump. Much of the race has been focused on Fetterman's health. Just days before the Democratic primary in May, Fetterman suffered a stroke, forcing him to cancel public appearances for months. He still suffers from auditory processing issues. On Tuesday night, a closed captioning system was set up so Fetterman could read the questions and his opponent's responses. During his opening statement, Fetterman discussed his stroke. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate, mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. And this campaign is all about, to me, is about fighting for everyone in Pennsylvania that ever got knocked down that needs to get back up and fighting for all forgotten communities all across Pennsylvania. One of the most heated portions of the debate between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz centered on the issue of reproductive rights. This is Dr. Oz talking about his support for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. There should not be involvement from the federal government in how states decide their abortion decisions. As a physician, I've been in the room when there's some difficult conversations happening. I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. Meanwhile, John Fetterman reiterated his support for reproductive rights. What I support, I support on Roe v. Wade. That was the law of the land for 50 years. He celebrated when it fell down, and I would fight to reestablish on Roe v. Wade. That's what I run on. That's what I believe. And I've always believed that the choice belongs women and their doctors. And he believes that the choice should be with him or Republican legislators all across this nation. For more, we're joined in Philadelphia by Will Bunch, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, national columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Will, welcome back to Democracy Now! So let's start off the significance of this race. I mean, it's one of the most watched races in the country right now. Could to determine the balance of the U.S. Senate? And then talk about this debate last night. Yes, well, it absolutely could. I mean, if you look at the polls— uh, right now, if, if if all the races went the way the polls are predicting, we'd be at or close to another 50-50 Senate. So so one race could really decide whether it's 50-50 or 51-49. Either way, it could decide, you know, who the next Senate majority leader is going to be, whether it's going to be Mitch McConnell or, or Chuck Schumer. So um, uh, this race is absolutely important. The polls have shown it's been tightening that Fetterman's led in most of the polls, but Oz is polled to within a virtual tie at this point. So last night was 
truly, you know, in terms of Senate races, and I, I've been covering politics for 40 years, just one of the most make or break nights I, I've seen in my lifetime of covering politics. And talk about the what happened last night and the beginning when John Fetterman uh, addressed the issue of his stroke, very unusual as he read closed captioning so he could process the questions and Mehmet's, uh Oz's responses. Yes. I mean, so what, what Fetterman and his team did was, you know, they, they tried to prepare the audience for the fact that he was going to struggle verbally on some of the answers. You know, they prepared going into it. Uh, I think he played his clip at the beginning, uh, you know, where he said he might mush words together. He might struggle with some of the answers. Um, that having said, I mean, uh, you know, I think you know, no matter where you come down politically, uh, it was a very hard night for John Fetterman in, in terms of where he was at with his stroke recovery and, and trying to deal with a format like this. You know, a, a lot of people pointed out the format of the debate last night, which was uh, really built around very short answers and, and meant to have a kind of a rapid fire give and take. Uh, was probably the worst possible format for him. I mean, he he struggled with it. He he clearly struggled with some of his answers. And, you know, uh, again, it, it's really kind of falls on the electorate to some point of, of how do you view that? I mean, most most doctors say, uh, you know, Fetterman has shown that he is recovering from this stroke. Uh, he's at a stage of his recovery where he's not 100 percent recovered, uh, but, it, but it's mainly, you know, auditory processing issues. And the question is, you know, whether as far as that part of it is concerned, whether voters are going to, uh, you know, look at uh, his heart problem or or what's in Fetterman's heart, right? You know, what his positions are on the issues and, and, and what he would do as a senator in terms of how he'd vote on things like reproductive rights or the minimum wage. Now, so, reproductive um, rights is a really interesting issue. We just played those clips. But for Dr. Mehmet Oz to say he doesn't want the feds involved with this decision, as if he was saying it should be a woman's personal decision, he did say it should be a decision between a woman, her doctor, <laughs> and local political leaders— yeah, I mean, what was fascinating was, you know, for all for all the focus on on Fetterman's performance, absolutely the worst gaffe of the night was was from Mehmet Oz. You know, the fact that uh, the fact that line where he said, you know, an abortion is decision between a woman, her doctor, and local elected officials. I mean, I mean, Pennsylvanians are going to see that that moment on a loop nonstop between now and November eighth because, uh, you know, that is going to is just going to be a highly unpopular. Uh, uh, position, you know, that the vast majority of voters in Pennsylvania, as in the rest of the country, do not want anyone else involved in that in that very private decision about reproductive rights. Doctors' so, offices so that, that are going to have to get bigger. Doctors' offices are going to have to get bigger <laughs> in order to fit the doctor, the uh, person who is pregnant, and the local elected officials all into that little office. As oh they my gosh! Yeah, decision. the reaction. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my Twitter feed was flooded with tweets from uh, from local elected officials saying, "Look, I'm I'm the last person you want to hear from on this, you know, and uh, you definitely do not want me involved." And, and what and, about uh, uh, yeah. well, what about fracking? Um, uh, Memedaz says that uh, John Fetterman has switched his position on fracking. Used to be against it. Now he says he's for it. I mean, to me, to, to be honest, that the whole fracking thing was was the most disappointing part of the debate for a couple, because I think it's a very important issue. Uh, you know, I mean, basically, both 
both candidates, in terms of what they said last night, gave uh, you know a full-on endorsement of fracking, uh, and and there was basically no mention of climate change at all in the in the debate from either from either the moderators, which was bad, or from either candidate. Um, uh, you know, uh, what I, I thought the second worst moment of the debate, aside from. Uh, Oz's abortion gaffe was an answer he gave on the minimum wage, where he basically said he would do nothing legislatively to raise the minimum wage. And and this is a huge issue in Pennsylvania because the state minimum wage here is only seven uh, is only seven twenty five, just like the national. And so we really depend on Washington to bail us out on that. And he said he wouldn't do anything, but he also said the cure is just more fracking, which will create these magical high paying jobs, which hasn't been the case since since the 20, 2000s. And, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and there was no mention of climate change throughout the debate. Um, you know, I, 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 I wish I, to me to me, I think the most disappointing disappointing moment on substance for Fetterman was the fact that he, he didn't give a more nuanced answer on fracking, that he, he he had a chance to address climate change and at least at least say that he supports, you know, more environmental regulation on fracking, which he does. Um, uh, you know, I, the, the truth is the majority of Pennsylvanians uh, oppose fracking, which is, I think, poorly understood by most political experts. So that was a bit of a disappointment. That um, I want to go to the part of the debate last night in Pennsylvania where John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz sparred over President Biden's plan to offer student debt relief to millions of borrowers. This is Dr. Oz. John Fetterman's approach, however, is not to deal with the unnecessarily high cost, but just to pay it. So if you want to pay students who didn't pay their loans back, basically what John Fetterman and Joe Biden are, 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 are arguing for is for plumbers who didn't go to college and couldn't, for a bunch of reasons, afford it to pay the bills of lawyers who went to graduate school and haven't paid their debt back. I don't think that's right for the American people. Let me just ask specifically, uh, with the plan to um, ease student loan debt, the debt forgiveness of $10,000, $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients, do you support that position. I, I, I do absolutely support that. I believe, like I said, uh, it's about helping y young learners, you know, be able to get a better start, you know, getting uh, off uh, in the, the start of their life. And I, I do believe that. And I believe a, ma a majority of Americans support that as well, too. That last answer, John Fetterman. Well, Will Bunch, you've written a whole book on this subject after the ivory tower falls, how college broke the American dream and blew up our politics and how to fix it. You look at how Americans came to owe $1.7 billion in student loans. Um, put what they're saying in context. Um, uh, yeah, well, I mean, the bottom line is this. Uh, uh, I mean, both of them could have and should have given a few more specifics. But, uh, you know, Fetterman supports student debt relief and, and, and Mehmet Oz opposes student debt relief. I mean, again, uh, uh, if you want to focus on the issues, I mean, I think that's the important takeaway for voters. You know, um, uh, Oz's answer was was not good. I mean, you know, he gave kind of the standard Republican trope about uh, or, or not trope. I mean, I mean, uh, College administrators are somewhat overpaid, but even addressing that problem is only only a drop in the bucket when you're talking about the uh, about the debt crisis, which is one point seven trillion dollars, which is just an astronomical figure. Um, he also he also uh, said a line which I thought should have gotten more attention, which is he thought his solution to making college more affordable was to have more electronic classes, which uh, 
you know, if you if you remember the height of the COVID era, that was the biggest complaint from students and, and administrators was, you know, the, the sterileness of, of, of trying to do college online. And, and yet Oz was proposing this as an answer for college as, as, as opposed to, you know, embracing liberal education and what that can do for our young people. So, so you know, I, I thought Oz's answer was terrible. I mean, I would, I would have liked to have seen more specifics, again, from Fetterman, but I think, uh, you know, Fetterman's, again, his, his heart is in the right direction in, in that he wants student debt relief uh, and he wants to make college affordable you, for more people. You have this latest news this week. The Republican-led states, a number of them, are attempting to stop Biden from implementing his pan, plan of debt relief for some uh, people. Um, you write in your book about the college problem, as you put it, or the college-non-college -college divide. Um, how do you see the college divide impacting the midterms and also the presidential election in 2024? I, I think it could have a big impact on the midterms. I, you know, I Explain mean, I think, what you mean. I think the, yeah, well, I, yeah, I think, no, I think the hope is that young voters are paying attention to this and that they understand that one party is is trying to block student debt relief, as you said. I mean, the Republicans not only think it's a bad idea, but now you have a number of Republican officials going into court and, and trying to block block this plan that would be 10 or even $20,000 of debt relief for millions of, of you know, young and middle-aged people. Um, uh, you know, and, and President Biden and the Democrat, you know, is the one who uh, finally took some action for the first time in decades, really, for the first time since the Reagan era, to, to make higher education a public good, to, to admit that we all have a responsibility for making higher education affordable and an option for our young people. So, so I think, I think, Voters should see a contrast, you know, whether the Democrats can get that message out and energize young voters who historically don't turn out in high rates in the midterms to to, to make them see that contrast and to get them to vote. You know, um, you know, the Republicans are trying to play on uh, uh, working class resentment. You know, they're saying that, you know, plumbers and taxi drivers and people without bachelor's degrees. And, re and remember, 63 percent of Americans do not have a bachelor's degree. And they're, they're trying to play on class resentments. Uh, about debt relief uh, to, to help them at the polls, but I, I think I think there's a real misunderstanding of who who gets student loans. I mean, I mean, frankly, a lot of people who live in these red districts uh, either are struggling with student loans or you know would like to have access to college that they're being denied right now. So I think I think on the Republican side, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of young people, uh, you know, the college situation and and who's getting these loans. Um. We're going to break. I also want to, as you corrected me, $1.7 trillion. Um, that is the uh, student debt issue in this country. Um, we're talking to Will Bunch, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and national columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, his book, After the Ivory Tower Fails. When we come back, we, Will's going to stay with us, but we're going to look at Penn State's cancellation of a student event featuring Gavin McGinnis, founder of the far-right Proud Boys will be joined by um, one of the students who opposed him being able to speak. Um, and then we're going to look at the governor's race that involves a candidate that chartered buses to go to the insurrection on January 6th. Stay with us.
All you fascists bound to lose by Rhiannon Giddens and the Resistance Revival Chorus. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Penn State University canceled a speaking event Monday night with Gavin McGinnis, founder of the far-right Proud Boys, citing the, quote, threat of escalating violence. Indeed, the Proud Boys have a history of violence and are under an active federal investigation for their role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But for weeks, Penn State had cited free speech rights when it resisted calls from students, faculty, and community members to cancel the event sponsored by the student group Uncensored America, which encourages, quote, young Americans to fight for free speech in order to make American culture free and fun again, unquote. Alex Stein, who the group describes as a comedian, was set to host the event. His show is called Stand Back and Stand By, a reference to Trump's comment to the Proud Boys during a 2020 presidential debate. When Penn State abruptly canceled the talk just before it was supposed to start Monday night, protesters still showed up and were met by Proud Boys who maced them along with journalists as police looked on. Penn State officials accused the peaceful protesters of obstruction and censorship, but claimed to not support McGinnis and Stein's views. From where we go to Penn State in uh, um, College Station to speak uh, uh, in rather State College, Pennsylvania, to speak with Sam president of the Penn State College Democrats Club, which had long called for the talk to be canceled, saying fascism has no place here. Sam, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Will Bunch, the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, Philadelphia Inquirer uh, columnist, is still with us. Sam, talk about what happened um, in State College, at Penn State College, and why you oppose Gavin McGinnis speaking Monday night. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Thank you for having me. So the event on Monday was supposed to be a scheduled comedy night for McGinnis and uh, Stein. And we all know or are very aware that he is the current, that he founded the Proud Boys and he's still actively involved with it. So I and a bunch of other student leaders called on the university to cancel the event and simply say, no, fascism doesn't have a place on our campus. But of course, like last year, they relented and said, no, we believe that these sentiments are bad, but due to these set of precedents from the Supreme Court, we have to have them here. But even though in 2017, I believe Richard Spencer was supposed to have an event here too, but they canceled it due to threats of violence. And that's basically where we were. I mean, it's interesting that Penn State's president, Neely Bendapudi, is the first woman and first um, person of color to be president of Penn State. So talk about mm -hmm. how things went down as the talk came closer on Monday and the pressure brought on the administration. And were you satisfied with its response? Yeah, sure. So leading up to the event, there was definitely a lot of like momentum and tension building up. Uh, I think students against, I forget the name of the organization, but a very progressive organization on campus sent out a mass email to students calling on them to go to the protests and denounce these fascist, um, these fascist talking heads. And then the school very much was a very adamant about pushing back and saying, we have to allow them to speak there, even though we don't agree with what they're saying, but please come to our university sanctioned event. And definitely, you can feel the tension going out throughout the school, back and forth, as Monday came. And, and as the event came—not the as the event came, but when Monday came and the event started to get closer and closer, there were a lot of protesters very much there to show how much they 
disagreed with the whole situation. And I think as the day turned into night, we definitely saw Proud Boys patrolling campus far away from where the event was happening. There were amazing students. Uh, the police there were very much, much adamant about not doing anything. I know they attempted to do some crowd control with horses, and there are and state police in riot gear, and it was a very... Um, it's a very messy scene, so I can see easily why they would want to cancel that event. And I think me and like a lot of other students were very much disappointed and disgusted with the university's response for pinning the response on students, even though we weren't walking around with cans of uh, pepper spray and spraying Proud Boys. They were doing that to the students. The event was organized by the far-right student organization Uncensored America, which was founded two years ago by Sean Simanko, a radio host and mm -hmm. field organizer for President Trump's 2020 campaign. He attended Penn State. Um, talk about this group and what they represent on campus. As you said, it's not the mm -hmm. first time Penn State has hosted racist alt-right figures on campus, from um, Milo Yiannopoulos, the British alt-right yeah. political commentator, to, as you said, um, mm -hmm. uh, after that, before that Richard Spencer, which was canceled in 2017. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to my knowledge, Mr. Semenko was deaf, was the chair of the Bull Moose Party back when he was a student here, so he already was very entrenched in far-right politics, and I believe he graduated in 2020, and he came back to found Uncensored America and very much wanted to keep a presence here and help expand um, far-right extremism on campus. So this wouldn't be his first performance. I definitely don't expect it to be the last, but I think it's very interesting and very concerning that uh, an unaffiliated student organization was allowed to have two fascists come and speak to us, us twice in a row. And I really do believe there needs to be more um, introspection and investigation into how these decisions are made and how people can outright lie and say, well, this leader of a neo-fascist group is definitely a good guy. He's cleaned up his act, even though if you just bothered to do a Google search, you can see he's still very much entrenched in that atmosphere of that Proud Boys gang that he formed. And finally, Sam Aja, you're the president of the Penn State College Democrats Club. You're an African-American mm -hmm. student. Why do you feel particularly threatened by groups like the Proud Boys? Yeah, I see Proud Boys as an overall threat to society, but me as a black and bisexual young man, I view them as a threat because when I hear them talk about how they treat minoritized communities, it's almost always with disdain and wanting to get, get us out from the rest of society. And as far as I'm concerned, I feel pretty comfortable coming to Penn State. I've met a lot of amazing communities here, and to hear that a portion of those fascists and those ideologies were going to come to my campus and start saying and espousing hateful rhetoric here was really something that filled me with a lot of anger and a lot of other students because the university has been trying time and time again to say that they support minoritized communities, but it seems like year after year they're given a test and they keep failing that Lismas test and expect us to still have faith in them. And as a student leader, I don't have the confidence to say I support them, nor do I believe they're here to 
be on our behalf in good faith. It's all about the optics and the PR of it all, which is really offensive because I'm a person, not a prop. And to continue to have to witness that and go through that is not only disgusting, but dehumanizing in general. Well, Sam Adra, I want to thank you so much for being with us, president of the Penn State College Democrats Club, speaking to us from Penn State in State College, Pennsylvania. I wanted to bring Will Bunch back into this conversation. Uh, you have written about the story at Penn State as well as the rise of the far right across the country. We talked with you in the first segment about the senatorial debate last night. Uh, we didn't talk about the gubernatorial debate because it's not happening. But in Pennsylvania, the Republican gubernatorial candidate, Doug Mastriano, who attended the January 6th Stop the Steal rally and helped arrange buses for pro-Trump pro protesters um, to go as well, he later worked with former President Trump Trump's legal team to overturn the 2020 election results. Talk about this race that is playing out in Pennsylvania. And then overall, not only about Mastriano, but the power of the Proud Boys and other such groups across the country now. Yes, I, I mean, uh, you know, w when people uh, say the phrase democracy is on the ballot in 2022, I mean, nowhere is that more true than Pennsylvania. Um, I mean, you accurately described Mastriano's background as an election denier and somebody who was very much an active participant in January 6th and, in fact, is still being looked at and investigated for his role in that. Um, but, you know, it, it goes much deeper than that. I mean, one thing is that uh, Pennsylvania is a state where his governor, he, he'll, he would be choosing the secretary of state. In other words, the person who oversees uh, the 2024 elections in Pennsylvania would be chosen by a Governor Mastriano if he wins. Uh, and he clearly he would pick somebody who shares his, you know, big lie 2020 election denial philosophy. So so that's pretty alarming. Um, uh, the other thing is uh, Mastriano has run with a full on embrace of Christian nationalism. I mean, Um, looks like Will Bunch just froze. Will, um, are you back with us? Will is speaking to us from Philadelphia. Will, continue with what yeah. you were saying. Uh, you froze you know, for as a well, minute. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, uh, you know, Michael Flynn and Roger Stone were here uh, Friday night in Pennsylvania to campaign for Mastriano. Uh, so he, he hasn't moved to the middle in this general election campaign at all. I mean, he's he's embraced uh, you know, his extremist roots, and he's hoping that a big turnout of people who share his Christian nationalist philosophy is going to be what gets him over the top uh, on Election Day. I mean— Well, as we— um as we fix your um, your microphone, I want to bring up a final comment, and that is—or uh, an issue—your um, recent column for the Philadelphia Inquirer, where you look at the right-wing political TV ads that ran repeatedly during the recent baseball playoffs, saying the games were marred by, quote, jarring interruptions from the most shockingly crude and arguably racist political ads since Willie Horton hit the small screen in 1988, unquote. The anti-immigration ads were sponsored by a new group that calls itself Citizens for Sanity, linked to the America First Legal Foundation, founded by former Trump advisor Stephen Miller. This is a part of the ad. 
Chaos, humanitarian disaster, Just hospitals overrun, schools overwhelmed, the safety net shredded, drug dealers and sex traffickers roaming free, a third world country, no, Arizona. Joe Biden and Mark Kelly have thrown open the southern border. Citizens for Sanity has also funded billboards attacking Democrats nationwide and ads in newspapers. And there's some pushback. The group um, Every Town for Gun Safety ran this ad against Pennsylvania Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano. The ad highlighting Mastriano's use of the right-wing social media platform Gab and its ties to the Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue shooter who killed 11 people. Before murdering 11 worshippers at this synagogue, multiple gunshots are heard from the lobby. The shooter posted his manifesto on Gab, a site for extremists who promote violence, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism. Doug Mastriano paid thousands to the same site to recruit supporters. Mastriano is a far-right conspiracy theorist who compared gun safety measures to Nazi Germany. Doug Mastriano is just too extreme for Pennsylvania. So if you could comment on both of these, uh, Will Bunch, um, that ad we just played on Mastriano and before that, the ads that played during the playoffs of uh, baseball. Uh, yes, I mean, I mean, these ads have been very visible in Pennsylvania. And in fact, uh, you know, Citizens uh, for Sanity unveiled a new crime ad that targets Philadelphia specifically, and it aired twice in the 10 minutes before the um, Fetterman-Oz debate last night. So, so, so they're highly visible. I mean, these ads are, are violent. They're racist. Uh, you know, I, I mean, they, they make the infamous Willie Horton ad from 1988 seem just remarkably tame in comparison. And um, what, what's disturbing is I, I, I just don't I don't see the Democrats doing much to counter this, you know, um, uh, to counter this message. I, I think I think the crime message is the reason that that Oz has gotten back into the race. And um, uh, uh you know, in, in using this crime issue as a bludgeon, I think the Republicans have very successfully kind of muted uh, the things that we're talking about and what what the message of that Mastriano ad, which is about, you know, democracy being on the ballot, you know, the threat from far right extremism. Uh, um, you know, the, the Republicans are going for a certain kind of middle class voter that isn't is going to see the threat to democracy as abstract but is going to see the fear that's, that's, you know, engendered by these ads as being very real. So, um, you know, I mean, the Democrats are running out of time, but I hope I hope they find a way to counter this Republican messaging on crime, because I'm really worried that it's that it's it's proving to be very effective so far, certainly here in Pennsylvania. Well, Will Bunch, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Pulitzer Prize winning national columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, speaking to us from Philadelphia. We will link to your Thanks, columns. Um, when we come back, we'll look at record early voter turnout in Georgia with Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter and Black Voters Matter Fund. Stay with us.
Lullaby in Black by Horace Tapsot. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Amidst a rise in white supremacy and increasing political division, we look now at how black voters continue to organize ahead of the November 8th midterm elections. The group Black Voters Matter is on a bus tour through 13 states. Tell the people where we at. We in Cattle Parish, Louisiana, a.k.a. Shreveport, in front of the early voting location downtown. And we are ushering people in the boat. This comes as new restrictions on voting rights in Republican-led states and confusion over the rights of formerly incarcerated people to vote, particularly in Florida, could lead to a decline in voter turnout. Last week, a court in Florida's Miami-Dade County dropped voter fraud charges against a man who was arrested in August by officers with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis's new Office of Election Crimes and Security. Robert Lee Wood had a felony conviction, but was not aware he was not allowed to vote under Florida law. Separately, a judge in Texas dismissed a charge against Harris Earl Rogers, who was on parole when he waited over six hours online to vote in the 2020 primaries in Houston. In Texas, casting a ballot while still serving a sentence, including parole, is punishable by up to 20 years in prison. For more, we go to Georgia, where voters shattered turnout records in the first week of in-person early voting for tightly contested races for Senate and governor this week and last week. Black voters comprised 35 percent of all those who turned out to vote on the first day. For more, we're joined in Atlanta by Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. Latasha, welcome back to Democracy Now! So just give us a lay of the land and what you are taking on right now and these sh shattering numbers of early voting in your state, Georgia. You know, we started, as you said, we started early voting last week. What we have seen is we've seen record turnout. We've broken all records around midterms elections. Um, and, 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 the, and what we're seeing is people are coming out. The interesting thing is that for weeks there were headlines to say uh, that there was going to be what, what, we're, what we're going to do with a black depressed vote, that black voters weren't excited about this election. You know, I, I um, often say that part of what happened is if you came to Georgia, you may not have seen the bells and the whistles, but people are very resolved and people are very determined. That's what we've been seeing as we've been going out throughout these streets, really organizing people that folks have not forgotten that Brian Kemp passed his SB 202 bill, which quite frankly was a blueprint of voter suppression. You know, this is not a fact that when black folks are coming out, what we're seeing that we're actually overperforming our numbers, right? Not because of voter suppression doesn't exist, but in spite of it, that part of what they did not anticipate is that we would get teed off because of this voter suppression bill. We would organize ourselves. We would steady the race. I think this is indicative that organizing works. And what we're seeing is there are pro-democracy groups that are on the ground doing the work to make sure that we actually get people informed, make sure that we get people mobilized, and make sure that we're encouraging people to vote. And what happens, you know, it's, it's this 
disappointing to hear that, oh, the Republicans are now using this narrative to say that, oh, voter suppression has not been a fact. See, look at at, at look at the black voters. They're, they're, this voter suppression is not a real thing. No, it is absolutely a real thing. What we've seen is that we've seen in counties just like Gwinnett County, which is the most populous county in the state of um, in the state of Georgia, have 60,000 challenges. How did those challenges come about? Because in the SB202 bill that was passed in Georgia immediately after the 2020 election in the legislative session, what it did is it gave any citizen has the right now to challenge the voting rights or the um, voting eligibility of another citizen that with indiscriminately. And so what we've seen is we've seen bad actors and a group of a small group of people who are attached to Trump to actually challenge over 60,000 voters for no other reason but say, oh, we don't think that they're eligible to vote. And so what that does is while it will be determined if they're eligible to vote, they're determined that they're eligible to vote, it backs up these voting um, uh, these voting boards in these, in these counties. And what it does, it is literally expending, we're expending an enormous amount of resources, of time and energy, not just mobilizing people and getting them and inform them about this election, but now we also have to combat voter suppression. And that's why we need to know how dangerous what is happening, that it is uh, it is impactful, but we're just simply determined and literally dealing with and navigating around the barriers as much as possible. Latasha Brown, you and Cliff Albright, co-founders of Black Voters Matter, just have an op-ed piece published in The Hill this morning. That's headline, Democrats need Black voters time to campaign and spend accordingly. And you say um, also that it's time to challenge traditional funding models to reflect the new and diverse Democratic base and our priorities, you say. So you're taking on the Republicans, but also the Democrats. What do you want to see them doing? What we're saying is that there is an antiquated model that we've used, that there's this antiquated model that we've seen Democratic funders and the party use um, based on the infrastructure of a candidate um, or where the party may have a a party apparatus. We're seeing that that's not enough, that we are far beyond this notion of it's just a two party fight. We're literally fighting for democracy. And it has been pro-democracy groups that have been on the ground. Literally, this isn't about whether the Democrats have power or just whether the Republicans have power, even though we know certainly would be extremely dangerous for the Republicans to go into power. But this is really about the people having power. And if that is the case, we are the best defense against democracy. When you look at the wins of what happened in 2020, that wasn't a result of just the infrastructure by political candidates. That was driven mostly by third rail organizations, pro-democracy and social justice groups that knew what was at stake in that election. And we came together, formed this infrastructure, this ecosystem to push the vote out. Here we're seeing right now that we're in many ways in the state of Georgia, groups are actually scrappling for for resources in one of the most significant elections that we are having. Why is it where there are billions of dollars in this election and you're seeing those pro-democracy groups do not have the resources that are needed and, and are being creative trying to pool resources? You know, because what we see is there's a consulting class that is primarily white men in D.C. in the Beltway that literally are being the consultants, political consultants on these political campaigns and they're advising candidates to put all of their money in television um, and that supports these white media conglomerates, right, which is extremely problematic for a number of reasons. Number one reason is young voters and many communities of color, but particularly young voters, are not watching television, the traditional television outlets. We're looking at 
programs that are more progressive. We're looking at programs like Democracy Now. We're looking at um, Netflix and YouTube and getting news from different sources. That's one. Secondly, this is not an air war. This is a ground war. You know, polls don't win elections. People do. And so if we are to really take serious this election, we have to literally go where people are mobilizing voters. They're encouraging and inspiring voters to get to the polls. That Those are community organizations and groups that are doing civic engagement work that have their pulse on the people that's going to move folks. And the third thing is we have to really think about kind of messaging that oftentimes what we see in the messaging, when you look at television and you look at the political ads, there are one or two issues oftentimes that have been decided on a, by some national poll or national consultants that may or may not speak to the issues that people care about in the communities that we're talking to. Those voters who have not been moved to vote or participate so far in the election, they've heard all of the, they've heard all of the, the sound bites. That's not moving them. They need another message. And in order to do that, you may have to make sure you have the right messengers that are literally putting that out, putting a different kind of narrative to really be able to speak to folks and let them make the connection of why this election is critical to them. They may not care about the issues that we're, that are the top issues on the, on the national platform, or it may be in a different kind of priority. But those are the reasons why we really, you know, it's bad habits are hard to break. What we're saying is what happened in Georgia was not a fluke. That is the future of politics in America, to literally recognize that it is going to be community-led efforts, grassroots democracy groups that are literally our best defense on the front lines for protecting us from fascism. And your latest, um, this latest fact that President Biden's authorizing the Democratic National Committee to transfer $10 million to House and Senate Democratic campaign committees and helping to um, pledge to raise $8 million for party candidates. Uh, this, um, the DNC now has transferred a total of $27 million so far this cycle, a record-breaking amount of money. Where you see that money going and what you want to tell the Democrats to do with it? I see that money going primarily on TV. We're seeing that money. We're bombarded. You can't turn on a television and every single ad is over and over and over again. And while, yes, that may have some impact, what I do know is those voters who have been disengaged in, those, uh, in the process, those voters who are already suspect um, around participating, those voters who have not been moved so far, in order for those voters to be moved, that that has to be, that's like hand-to-hand -hand communication. That has to be peer-to-peer -peer organizing. So what I would like to see and what we were attempted to do in this op-ed is to put it out, to lay it out, that there is a winning strategy. We have receipts. We can actually show that we are able to win when you're building out and you're supporting the ecosystem of support of pro-democracy groups, that that is a game changer. We saw that in Alabama in 2017. We saw that in Georgia in 2020 and 2021. And so why are we abandoning a strategy that we know works and going back a strategy that has gotten us here in the first place? What about this record turnout um, that we're seeing in Georgia? I mean, you have this highly contentious senatorial race, um, Reverend Raphael Warnock versus Herschel Walker. Um, very close. Raphael Warnock, according to the polls, slightly, slightly ahead, who's already served two years in office. Um, and then you have um, Kemp versus Stacey Abrams, uh, uh, a colleague of yours, you know, one of the leading voting rights activists 
Congress in this country. But she is uh, further behind Kemp, who you talk about as quashing votes, removing people from the voting rolls. That's Kemp. You know, what the Republicans have done, which I think is despicable, one of the things that they have done is they've actually used messages to actually exploit um, the pain um, and discontent of black voters. What we're seeing is even with Herschel Walker, they don't care about Herschel Walker, for the most part where Herschel Walker is a placeholder for them. Certainly here's a man that we are actually seeing and we're seeing have a meltdown daily in terms of literally putting it out where his where he has major, major character issues that we know that he has major, major issues around violence, um, violence with women, violence in his family. Um, there's major issues that he has. And we know that if you if you listen to him, you can actually hear that there's some cognitive things going on with him as well. And so while this is not to make an excuse for him, because he's certainly a grown man and should be accountable to, to his actions and putting himself out there, the bottom line is he has been used. He's been manipulated and used in this moment. And because they have decided that all they needed to do is to find, we've got to, to try to peel off the black voters to find a black face that can actually support and stand for a white agenda that would actually divide the vote in Georgia. You know, we have seen in recent in a, in a recent month, which was very dis. Um, disheartening to me, you know, this whole notion that Brian Kemp is now saying that, oh, there's this message that Brian Kemp says that he is um, that he is good on on businesses, on small businesses. Well, and he will be good for black businesses. Well, how so? He's been in office for four years. And what we know is of the millions, the millions of dollars of contracts that the state of Georgia gives out. Black voters, who, black people who make more than 28 percent, almost 30 percent of the population in Georgia have received less than one percent of the business, the business contracts for the state of Georgia. Here's a here's a, a person that says Brian Kemp is saying that, yes, he cares about the people of Georgia and he is good for Georgia. Well, how so? Since he has been in office, six hospitals have closed and we're on the verge of another hospital closing in Metro Atlanta. All of that is, yes. Can we place that in his in his lap? Absolutely because he has refused to expand Medicaid, which is part of the reason why even the latest hospital said that it is closing because it cannot handle the weight of so many uninsured patients that are coming in. And so if he expanded Medicaid, will it actually bring in more than a billion dollars in our state that we could have saved those hospitals? We could save this hospital that is on the verge of closing. But he doesn't care about that because he doesn't care about the people of Georgia. What he cares about is his own power. He has been voted. We have five seconds. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Latasha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter, speaking to us from Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, and tune in on November 8th for our three-hour midterm election night special. We'll be broadcasting live starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Stay safe.